We are back in Joshua today, Joshua chapter 10, we're in the middle of it, and there are uh, long gaps <laughs> between my opportunities to speak on this sometimes, and it's easy for us to lose sight of where we're at in this story of Joshua. So I want to take some time to walk back into the context, but not just of Joshua, I want us to go back into Genesis. So I'm going to preach through the six books of the Bible this morning, if you're okay with that. <laughs> um, I want us to take a step back because I want to show you the story of the Bible as it leads up to our passage today. Because if you see that, it will also help you see that God is working a plan and he's the one who's winning. So we go back to Genesis 15. There's this guy named Abraham that God has brought from an area that's close to Iraq today called Ur and brought him to what is now modern-day Israel, Canaan at that time. And he had promised Abraham all kinds of things. Um, but one of those particular promises that he gave to Abraham was a land. He made a covenant with Abraham that he would give him this land in Canaan. He also, in Genesis 17, you go two four, chapters forward, he promises to Abraham that his descendants are going to be as many as the sand of the sea or the stars in the heaven. Now that's a really weird promise to make because Abraham is really old. I mean, he's really old. He's older than Miss Norma. Miss Norma, that was really mean. But you know what? It was like, it was like, I think, I don't know my facts very well. It's like, it was in his 90s at that point, early 90s. He, it was like 20 years, 30 years from now, Miss Norma, God telling her, telling her, She's going to have a baby. If, if, Mr. Han, if Mr. Doolin was still around, him telling her and Mr. Han, Mr. Doolin that they were going to have a baby. That's how crazy it would seem, right? Just So God promises that. But God promises not just that he'd give, her a, give Abraham and Sarah a baby, but that there'd be tons of people from Abraham. And he's old. Okay, you go forward still a few years. Like God makes a promise to Abraham and then says, and then nothing happens. Like what in the world? Now Genesis 21 and God keeps that promise and he gives him a son named Isaac. You go forward to Genesis 25. Isaac's married, has two sons, Jacob and Esau, born to Isaac and Rebekah. So it still doesn't seem like God is fully keeping his promises because it's just a handful of children instead of as numbering the sea, numbering the stars of the, of the sky of the sand of the sea, right? You keep going, though. Genesis 37 through 50, God takes Jacob and 12 of his, his 12 sons well, 11, down to meet the 12th, the other son, in Egypt. Now, this is a problem in one sense because God has promised to give 
Abraham this land, and now he takes him away from the land that he'd promised to give him. And 400 years pass. 400 years pass. The people of Israel are in Egypt, and now they're enslaved in Egypt. But that doesn't change God's promises, does it? 400 years go by, and God's promises still remain. I'm going to make you a great people. In you, all nations of the earth will be blessed, he had said. So you get to the book of Exodus, and you see that God redeems his people out of slavery and brings them out in mighty ways, right? He redeems his people from Egypt. And then they're coming out of Egypt and they get up to this Red Sea and God splits the Red Sea and they walk across on dry land. God is moving earth, the waters, to bring his people to keep a promise. So he brings them in and then Exodus 15 through 18, God leads his people towards that promised land. And in doing so, think about it. All these people leave for 400, after 400 years, you can imagine now there are a lot of people, right? And they leave this land, and there's only so much food you can bring with you. And he takes them out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, into the Sinai Peninsula. And if you look on a map, you see Egypt, and then you see Israel, and in between is this little uh, arrowhead-shaped section of land called the Sinai. I've been there. It looks like the moon. It looks like the moon, literally. There's no vegetation anywhere. So they've left Egypt. They're here on the moon on earth. How are they going to eat? God gives them food. He provides bread from heaven. He breaks open a rock and causes water to come out. Then in Exodus 19 through 23, God takes them to this mountain in Sinai and gives them a covenant. And we know that as the, goodness gracious, baby. (laughs) That's a good thing, though. Um, I'm pulling a mat now. (laughs) Can't let stuff go. Takes them to the mountain, gives them a covenant. And we know that covenant as the Ten Commandments. But in that Ten Commandments and the law that he gives there, it's a new covenant that does not supersede the covenant with Abraham, but goes for his special people, all right? Then you get to Exodus chapter 23 and verses 20 to 33. God tells the people of Israel right there in Sinai that I'm going to give you that promised land that I promised to Jacob, that I promised to Isaac, that I promised to Abraham. I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to give you victory with it. He says right there, I'm going to read you just a few of those verses. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to that place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon. This is Moses speaking at this point, talking about God. He will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. And then he goes down to verses 30 to 31. Listen what God promises to Israel here. 
They're in the Sinai wilderness, not back where the land is that they're promised. He's talking about, I'm going to bring you there. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea, so that would be at the bottom of that arrowhead, that's the part they crossed over, all the way to the Sea of the Philistines. That would be the Mediterranean as we know it. And then he says, from the wilderness where they're at, and now he says, towards the east where the river Euphrates is. That's a huge swath of land. For I will give you the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. Then you get to the book of Leviticus. And the whole book of Leviticus is God teaching his people how to worship him and how sin must be atoned for. All of that is in there. Then you move on to the book of Numbers. And right at the beginning of Numbers, God has Moses count all these people who came from one man, Abraham. Abraham to Isaac. Isaac to Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. These 12 sons have children. They marry, and it turns into 603,550 men. That's men 20, and, uh, some age around there, and up. So that doesn't even include all their wives, the wives and children. God's fulfilling a promise. That's, the numbers are really growing here. Then you get to Numbers 11, and the people complain about not having meat. And what does God do? He provides meat for them. And then you get to Numbers 13, and Moses sends out spies into the land, that promised land that he promised to give to Abraham. He sends out 12 spies, and those spies go and check it out. And it's amazing. It's amazing. It has everything God has promised they would need. But the guys come back, and 10 of those spies say, it's scary. There are people there that are, look like they play in the NBA. There are people there who are going to destroy us. They're fearful. They're timid. As if they hadn't just seen the Red Sea parted, or the water come out of the rock, or bread come from heaven, or quails just land in the wilderness. It's scary, right? They've got this. They, and two guys, Caleb and Joshua, who were some of those 12 spies, said, we've got, God will provide for us. Let's go, guys. And God judges that generation, the parents, and says, you do not believe me. You have rejected me. And he says, you will die in the wilderness here. You will die. Your children will continue, and they will get to go into the land, but you're going to die. I'm done with you. And if it wasn't for Moses interceding, it appears that he would have just smoked them all. But God says, you, this generation will not get to go into the promised land, but the next generation do. So they wander, literally like in circles, in the Sinai wilderness for 40 years. And in that 40 years, those parents die off, but the children Live And it says there that God caused their clothes to not wear out. He caused their shoes to not wear out, their sandals. And he continued to feed them and provide for them and protect them. And then you get to the book of Deuteronomy. You're like, what's this all about? It feels like I've just read all this and it's the same thing. Well, if you look at the book of Deuteronomy, 
the people of Israel are just about ready to cross over the Jordan River and go into that promised land that God's been promising. So what happens there? Moses stands up and tells all the second generation everything that their parents probably failed to tell them about what God had done in bringing Abraham out of Ur and tells them the whole story of how God provided for them and then gives them the law and says, here's what's going to happen when you move into this promised land because God's going to keep his promise. Then the end of Deuteronomy, you go to Joshua, the book that I've been preaching through. In Joshua chapter 1, Moses has died and Joshua now is raised up and there God promises to be with the people but with Joshua, he leads them into this land that he had promised to Abraham a long time ago. Okay? So now we're up to the book of Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, God says this to Joshua. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God tells that to Joshua. You're about to go into this land that has all of these nations that rebel against me, that sacrifice their children. You're going to wipe out the land and take it, and I'm going to be with you. So you get into chapter 2, and Joshua sends a new set of spies into the land because they're about to cross over, and he's like, okay, it's been 40 years since we sent the first spies. We need to send the second new set of spies to figure out what we're up against. And then that Story in Joshua 2, we saw that God protected the spies. They get to check everything out. They go to Jericho, they check it out, and they come back protected. Joshua 3 through 4, God says, all right, it's time to go. And he parts the Jordan River just like he parted the Red Sea and brings his people across on dry land into that promised land that he had promised Abraham so long ago. And now we get to Joshua chapter 5. And God says, it's time to prepare yourself for the rest of the battles that lie ahead. And how does he have them prepare? Not by sharpening their blades, not by doing drills and marches. He has them prepare by worshiping him and celebrating the Passover. Very interesting, right? God says, you are not going to be the one to do this fighting. Ultimately, it's going to be me, and you need to see me as king and set me apart and remember how I delivered you. Then we get to Joshua chapter 6, and it's the first battle. And what happens? God has them march around the city, right, seven times, seven days, and on the seventh day, seven times, and the walls come down. God brings down the walls. God brings the victory. And then we move to Joshua 7, and we see the next city they're actually defeated. It's a little city, but we found out that the only reason they lost is because of disobedience in Israel. And then we get to Joshua 8, and God brings victory now over that little city because the people repented. God brought the victory. We get to Joshua chapter 9, and at the very beginning... There's five kings, these city kings, form an alliance against God. You may say, well, it's against Israel. No, no, no. It's against Yahweh. It's very clear. The text makes it that they see that this Yahweh God 
could possibly be defeated because they lost against Ai. So they form an alliance against God. And then we saw that strange story of the Gibeonites tricking Israel into making a covenant with them. They break out of that alliance and form this, this covenant. And then Joshua chapter 10, the first 15 verses, God destroys the armies of those five city kings. These are his enemies. How does he do it? You remember? He brought hail and lightning from heaven, and then he even held the sun still. He stopped somehow the earth from moving so that they could wipe out and do complete battle. And that's where we're at today. All of that. Now, I, I told all of that. I could have just jumped right to our verses. I told all that for a reason, because I want us to see some themes that started in Genesis and come all the way up to today, into this passage. When you saw all those things I bulleted, I'm just curious. This is dangerous, Paul. Why are you doing it? But I'm going to do it. What themes did you see already in all those things? What's a common thread? Teresa. God's protection. Yeah, exactly. What else? Josh. Ooh, the need for patience and trust, right? This is a long plan, isn't it? Good. Penny. Yes. You guys are good. Okay, let me just list off these. Here's some other things we saw. God uses the most unlikely of people. <laughs> he uses idiots, <laughs> right? Idiots like us, we know. God works in the most unlikely of situations. God provides for his people. God fights the battles for his people. And God keeps his promises. We could probably list more, but we see those things. They happen over a course of several hundred years. And each generation has to know what happened in the previous generation in some sense because it's written down and Moses wrote it down and we read stories about them telling it to the next generation. Okay? Keep that in mind as we read this passage in Joshua now today. So we're at verse 16. If you're following along with me, it says, These five kings, that's the kings from the beginning of chapter 9 who formed an alliance and now just have their rear ends handed to them. He says, These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. Now, this is, this is very, it's interesting because word has gotten out that these five kings have run and hid. And it doesn't say just a cave. Apparently, everybody knew which cave they're talking about because it says the cave at Maqueda. And we see here both military leadership, strategy demonstrated by Joshua. That's pretty impressive. But also spiritual leadership. He says, God is with you. Go and finish the mop up. The next verses, 
verse 20 through 21, when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out. And when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people of Israel returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. And what's going on here? First of all, we see God keeping a promise in that the people of Israel return safe to Joshua. All right? God said, I'll be with you. You honor me, you obey me, I'm going to help you. He keep brings them back safe. The next thing here, what's this not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel? We see in Joshua 2 and Joshua 5 that the cities and nations around them were terrified. Terrified. And by the time you get to Joshua chapter 9, they're rumbling because they see, they're, they're you know, hey, I think we can take them down because they saw the defeat of Ai. And now this statement is a contrast to that. It's saying their lips were shut now because they saw that they had no hope, these enemies of God. Okay, so keep reading. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those kings out to him from the cave the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmouth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. Now, this may seem unusual to us, but in Ancient Israel, in that area, this was not actually an uncommon practice. When the enemies would be defeated, the defeaters would come and do this symbolic thing where they pronounce victory over their enemies by putting their feet on their necks. And what's interesting is usually statements would be issued at that point that says, this is what you're going to do, and this is what we'll do to you. Interestingly, that's not what is said next. It says in verse 25 through 27, Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death and he hanged them on five trees and they hung until, on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. Now, what's interesting is, them is Joshua hanging, he kills them first, and then hangs them on the tree. Hanging them on the tree is a public statement to anybody that Yahweh has won, and you don't mess with him. And then when it's like makes a big deal about why did he take them down before the sun, this is Joshua just obeying God. Because if you read in the Old Testament, in the books before that, God gives specific instructions about anyone who's hung on a tree needs to be taken off that tree before sundown. 
because it then says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And we've talked about that before because it's Christ fulfilling that. But here, it's simply Joshua just obeying what God told him to do. Don't leave them hanging. But I want you to go back to verse 25. Instead of Joshua telling the people around, this is what we're going to do, what does he say? Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus says, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. He points to God. He says, God will do this. He has to, because we just saw God hold the sun still. God sent hail and, and lightning down, right? He points to God as the one who's going to do this. Now, here's a question I have. Why does he tell them not to be afraid? I mean, these are the people who saw a man who was in his 90s, their great-great-great-great-grandpa, have a baby. This is the God who did all the plagues of Egypt. This is a God who parted the Red Sea. This is a God who made bread appear out of nowhere and water come out of the rocks and cause walls to fall down and lightning and the sun to stay still. Why would he tell them to not be afraid? And when I was writing this, thinking about this, I could not help but think of this meme. And if you're 20 and under, maybe you'll like it. The rest of us are like, what are you talking about? All I can think of is, why? Why? Okay, nobody else got it. There's this guy, this preacher meme, and he just keeps saying, why, why, why? And that's kind of the same question I have in my head. Why are you telling them to not be afraid? They have nothing to be afraid for. What's that? You're not wrong. You are not wrong, Donnie. The story that we walked through showed the, that these people, these people of Israel, are quite fickle and forgetful. They're quite fickle and forgetful, like us, a bunch of idiots, <laughs> right? We are quite fickle and forgetful. So how does he help them to be afraid, not be afraid? How does he help them? Look at the verse. He says, don't be afraid, don't be dismayed, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies. How does he help them not be afraid? He reminds them of promises. He reminds them of promises. So the question is, well, which promises is he reminding them of here? Well, it's got to be this one for sure, because it's almost the same words the first half. Joshua 1.9, we just read it. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That first part, he's reminded them of a promise God already made. In there, it just says God's going to be with them. And remember, they have their feet on the necks of their enemies. And he's saying, don't be afraid or don't be discouraged because the Lord is going to do this. So it's not fully this promise. It's just part of it. Maybe it's this promise that we just read earlier from Exodus. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land and I will set your border and he goes on to some, and then he says, and you shall drive them out before you. I think that's part of the promise, but it, I don't think it's the full promise that they're remembering here, that Joshua is telling them. The first part of his phrase to them is this. 
Don't just be strong and courageous. But I think the other promise he's bringing to their mind, because remember, their feet are on the heads, the necks of their enemies. This promise right here, Genesis 1.14, God speaking to the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, blah, 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 verse 15. That's disrespectful. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, talking to Satan. It's interesting because what you're going to see here is how does Joshua help them not to be afraid? He reminds them that Yahweh will crush his enemies under feet. And they've seen that before prophesied, and now he's showing it. Physically, visibly, he's showing it so that they can see it. And it's interesting. We listed those themes that we saw through Scripture leading up to this point. This is another theme of Scripture. That God will subdue his enemies under feet. Look at Psalm 47. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. And then you get to Psalm 110. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, it's interesting because I changed the theme there a little bit, right? From God will subdue his enemies under feet to under his feet. Whose feet are resting on this footstool here in this verse? Whose feet are those referring to? This is Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, who's talking to who here? Well, David's writing that psalm. Jesus brings this psalm up to the Pharisees, and he asked them the same question. Who's David talking to? And they're just as head-scratching as you guys are right now. What's interesting is this verse right here, Psalm 110.1, is one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament. And they're all, every single time they're referenced in the New Testament, referencing this verse, pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the head-crushing, serpent-head-crushing Messiah that was promised in Genesis. Jesus is the, the enemy-crushing Messiah that we see pictured in Joshua chapter 10. So let me give you another example from the New Testament, actually, where it quotes of this verse. So Peter is delivering a sermon, and he's telling the people of Israel about who Jesus really is. And it's interesting because when doing this, he's now connecting and saying Jesus is Yahweh, Jesus is God. He says, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. You see this strange scene that we see in Joshua 10 of the enemies having their heads, their necks put under the feet of Israel. It's a shadow. It's a foretelling. It's a picture of something to come. 
And, and all through the Old Testament, you see these pictures, these shadows. They're not perfect representations, but they well up in us this longing for someone who will do it perfectly. They, they cause us to long for the Savior, the Messiah, who will permanently crush the enemy. And that's what Joshua 10 right here, in that whole scene, it's begging out to help us see Jesus. Just like he told those people, those two men on the road to Emmaus, he went to the Old Testament and showed them himself all over. I am so confident that Jesus went to this passage and said, guys, that's me right there. I'm showing you. I'm going to be the one who will do this, but perfectly. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. 15, 24 through 26. Then comes the end. Paul is talking about the resurrection and then the final resurrection when he delivers Jesus, the kingdom, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Notice, the way that's phrased from a grammar perspective, it implies that Jesus is right now reigning. That he has to reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet. And we're given a promise here that Christ will reign and his enemies will all be put under his feet. So you and I, we need to be reminded of these kind of promises. And you need to remind yourself of these kind of promises, especially when you have weeks like Steve had this week. You have to look and see that God is winning and he will put all of his enemies under his feet. And you need to not only be reminded and you not only need to remind yourself, but you need to remind others in your life of these promises. So my question is, why do we need to hear that same encouragement from God today? Well, one is because we can be cowards today. I know I can. There are times when I know I should open my mouth and say something that would give hope and point to Jesus. And in my fear, I don't. We can often feel defeated today. We can have days, weeks, months that I feel like I'm a complete loser and I'm losing the battle. We need to hear this kind of encouragement because we can also be overwhelmed today with all of the pressures. If you're a young mom, you know what I'm talking about. That overwhelming sense that you're being crushed by all of this, all the things you have to do. We need to hear the same encouragement that Christ is winning because of that. And why else do we need to? Because we quickly forget something Pastor Matt said last week. In Luke 10, 18 through 19 that we went through, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread your feet on the serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. It's right there too. This is a theme of scripture that God will subdue his enemies under his feet and your feet. I don't understand how that works, but it must be because I'm united to Christ. Matt told us, Rejoice, because nothing will stop the ministry of the gospel. Nothing. So Israel, they needed to live 
in light of a promised victory. That's why he had to tell them, you've had all these victories, but don't be afraid. Keep moving forward because there is a certain victory ahead. They need to be reminded of how to live in the light of that. And you and I need to be reminded of how do we live in light of a promised victory that we know is coming. If you knew that tomorrow, if you knew that tomorrow was 100% certain that Christ was returning, when we know he returns, he rules and reigns and subdues all his enemies and the judgment happens, if you knew that that was happening tomorrow, what would you do in the fight today? That's the question. What would you do today in light of knowing he's coming back tomorrow? Peter asked the same question. In light of the judgment coming, how do we fight today? And I think he has an interesting answer. It says, 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Though, as Josh pointed out, it takes a lot of patience on waiting on those promises, right? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's God's heart. That's really why God's delaying his return, as because he wants others to turn to him. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth, the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, and here he's asking the question that I'm asking you and me, since all of this is to be true, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to the, his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved... Since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now, that may not be what you thought would be how I'd fight, how I'd live today in light of God's winning. But I want to give you five ways, five ways to live now to show that Christ is winning. We brainstormed a little bit about this on Wednesday night. Like, how? what are signs that we see that Christ is winning? But I think there's more. And I'm only going to give you five because this is like application and it's going to be different for everybody. But some of these may hit right home. One way to show that Christ is winning is by fighting sin in your life. Not being content with patterns of sin in your life and knowing that Christ has broken the chains, the power of sin against you, given you victory, the ability now to say no to sin. Every time you say no to sin, you're showing the world, 
and God that you believe that Christ is winning, that he won the victory over sin in your life. That's, if we, we just stop there, that's enough. Like if, because all of us have got that in our life. What habits of sin in your life, if you're not attacking them, you're saying Christ is not winning. But to the extent you're fighting it, you're showing that Christ is winning. And the second one may be like a head scratcher for you. This is a way that I think we can show the world that Christ is winning. Have kids. Have kids and point them to Jesus. And you may be like, how in the world does that show that Christ is winning? Well, how much are children valued in this world today? They're not. Donnie's shaking his head. They're not. We're killing them. Killing them in the womb. We're destroying their bodies. We're, we're just blowing away their whole mind by how we tell them things that are just make no sense. And how, if you've had, for those of you that are parents in this room, if you've had more than one child and you tell somebody you've got, I've got two, I've got three, what is the typical reaction? You know, there's usually this joke, well, you know how that works, right? Right? This world does not value having children. But more than that, this shows that Christ is winning because from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, God says to be fruitful and multiply, not just to have a bunch of kids to have kids for kids' sake, but because in Genesis 1.27, he said, I'm making Adam and Eve in my image be fruitful and multiply, meaning I make these image bearers and I want you to go make more image bearers because to the extent that image bearers spread across the earth, the glory of God to the extent that they're in Christ and living for him are spreading the glory of God. So even in a country like China where there is persecution and they can't meet in a room like this openly, they are showing the world that Christ is winning by having children, especially when they're told they can't. Um, I would also say, point your grandkids to Jesus. Some of you in this room are already past, and you're like, what do I do? Point your grandkids to Jesus. Or maybe you don't even have children. You can't have children. Help point others to Jesus. Help point other kids to Jesus. Help other parents. Encourage them to have more. Go adopt. Go foster. We want the glory of God to spread through children. You can show the world that God is winning by having kids. Third thing you can do to show the world that Christ is winning is do your job well. Don't be the person at work that people are gossiping about because you're not doing your job well. To the extent that you lead a project well, or you fix toilets well, or you discipline the kids at the high school, to whatever you're in, do that to the best of your ability, because that gives glory to God and shows the world what it looks like to be a Christian. Isn't that interesting? It... Third thing, fourth thing, speak truth unwaveringly. When you speak up in situations where you know you would normally be a coward, 
I know this because I'm speaking on my own, in my own situation, when I know that I should say something, when I say Christ is winning, he will win no matter whatever temporary consequences are in my life, I need to open my mouth. You're showing that Christ is winning, even if they put you in jail. Even if they put you in jail, Christ is still winning. And fifth and final, pray remembering that Christ is winning. I didn't just put pray on its own because I know sometimes my prayers sound like an unbelieving, whimpering person. And, and that maybe that's where we're at, right? I have to at least open my mouth and come to, to God. But the prayer of faith is one believing that Christ, you're winning. I know in this situation where I feel personally no hope, I know that you are going to win. Will you do the work that you've promised to do? And that, my friends, is why Joshua tells these people of Israel, these fickle and forgetful people who have seen all these awesome things, just like you and I have seen awesome ways that God has moved preeminently in Jesus Christ rising from the dead after dying on the cross for your sins. We have seen all that. And then we just turn back and complain. <laughs> that's why Joshua had to tell them that, and that's why God's telling us through Joshua here, remember, Christ is winning. Christ is winning. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you will subdue all of your enemies under your feet. Christ, when we think about the fact that we were your enemies, you said while we were yet your enemies, you loved us and reconciled us, showed your love toward us. We were your enemies and we deserved the condemnation that every rebel against you deserves and yet you showed us your great love. And we know that there is a day coming when you will reign in finality. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, help us to be people who are brave and speak openly. Help us to be people that will tell that Jesus Christ is their hope, their only hope, and that he can make them children of God, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the Father, not enemies. Help us to be people that show that Jesus is Lord over everything. In his name we pray. Amen.